Well, we are going through the book of Luke. And so far we've gone from his birth to his baptism and from the 30 years of obscurity to the explosion of his public ministry with miracles and massive crowds thronging to see him and hear him. But as we head into chapter 19, here's what I want you to understand. As we head into chapter 19 today, we're headed into his last 10 days of life here on this earth. That's what you need to understand. Luke 19 begins the final 10 days of his life. Now, it's going to take us six more chapters and another year of Sundays to get through that. Not making a joke. Yes. To get through these final 10 days. But, but here's the reason. Every gospel writer, not just Luke, every gospel writer gives more ink to these final 10 days of his life than any other part of his life. Why? Because these final 10 days focus more than any other on what he really came to do. And so it's worth noting as he heads towards Jerusalem now. So he's turned his face towards Jerusalem from this point forward. He's getting to Jerusalem. As he heads towards Jerusalem, Luke gives us one more divine appointment and direct encounter with a lost sinner so that we can see what Jesus really came to do. You realize he could have given us one more spectacular miracle? You do know that everything Jesus said and did is not recorded in the gospels. They had to pick and choose filled with the Holy Spirit. He could have given us another spectacular miracle thinking miracles are what it's all about. Tell about another miracle. He does not. He does not. Instead, he gives us one more divine appointment and direct encounter with a lost sinner so that we can see what Jesus really came to do, and so that we can understand that salvation in Jesus. I keep saying this, but I'm going to keep saying it because it's so true. Salvation in Jesus is like no other religion we've ever had, currently have, or ever will have. Because only Christianity, only Christianity has a seeking, saving God who came down into our world so that we could have a relationship with him through his son, Jesus Christ. That is like no other religion. Go to Luke chapter 19. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Luke 19, beginning in verse one. Luke 19, verse one. I do not hear pages flipping. Oh my goodness, make some noise. Tell me you've got real paper Bibles. Uh, oh, if you're just swiping the little app in your lap, I pity you. I pity you. Come on, folks. Okay. Luke 19, verse 1. He entered Jericho and was passing through. Jericho is not where he really wants to go. This is not the end. He's on his way to Jerusalem. He entered Jericho and was passing through, and there was a man named Zacchaeus, who was a chief tax collector and was rich. Look at me a minute. That's kind of redundant. He really didn't need to tell us that second part. It was true every time. All tax collectors were rich, 
because they extorted money from people. There was no tax brackets. Rome just said, go get all you want. Here's what we want. You keep the difference. Every tax collector was rich. This man is fabulously rich. He is a chief tax collector. Probably has guys working under him. He's either over this city or over this region. He's a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small of stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him. For he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. For I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they is the crowd, you guys, but in particular, the religious leaders of the day, when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a, say it. And here's what's going on. They don't know their Bibles. How many people, according to the Bible, are sinners? For all have sinned. All, say it again, all. All. Raise your hand and say it. All. All, All. they had a framework and perspective. Oh, there are sinners and there's us. There are sinners and there's people who aren't that bad. There are sinners and you guys, this is not like, oh, people used to do that. My mother grew up that way. I won't name the denomination, but she went to church every Sunday and literally She believed there were sinners, but they weren't her and her friends attending church and singing in the choir. Does that still happen today? Yes. She believed sinners were people who did really bad things, but it certainly wasn't them. So when when she dropped us off for VBS at that little church that some woman invited her to, and we were bringing little worksheets home where we'd colored in black for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, she was offended. We're not sinners. And my precious little five-year-old twins are certainly not sinners. That was news to her. She was going to church and didn't know her Bible. Could that happen? They said, he's going to be the guest of a man who is, we keep running into this. This is not the first time, right? Remember Luke chapter seven, when the woman slipped into the banquet and began to wash Jesus's feet with her tears and her hair. They didn't even say it out loud. They just thought it. But he knows what you're thinking. That had to be awkward. And they thought, if he's really who he says he is, he should know who this is that's touching him, that she is a, say it, sinner. She had a bad reputation in town. They thought, now there's a sinner. And they thought, this man Zacchaeus, there's a sinner, but it's certainly not us. It's a man who's a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, behold, Lord. The half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I, this is funny. He doesn't need to use if. He should have said since. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything. Since I've defrauded tons of people of tons of stuff. That's how it worked. Just take what you can. Take whatever you can. 
If I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, today, salvation has come to this house. Since he also is a son of Abraham for the son of, here's one of my favorite verses. You ever wake up thinking, what's one of Pastor Brad's favorite verses? Now you'll have an answer right here. For the son of man came to, say it, seek and save who? The lost. Came to seek and save the lost. Oh, how is being saved by Jesus different from every other religion in the world? How's it different? Here's the first thing that stands out. Number one. If you want to be saved by Jesus, you will have to get over yourself and what other people think. You'll have to get over yourself and what other people think. Look at what I'm talking about in verse four. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him. Now, verse verse three gives us greater insight to verse four. He was not just curious. Wonder what kind of robe he's wearing. Wonder what kind of sandals. Wonder what he looks like. Zacchaeus was not curious to see what he looked like. Look at verse three. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. Oh, that's different. I want to know who he is. Who is he? Who is he? Who is this Jesus? What did he come to do? I've been hearing things about him. I've heard some of his sermons. I've heard some of the reports. Who? I want to know who he is for myself. I'm seeking to know who he is. And he wants it so badly, you guys, that he doesn't care what anybody else thinks about it. One of the biggest hindrances to receiving salvation By grace alone, through faith alone, in, say it, Christ alone, is our pride, our dignity, and our huge concern for what other people will think. What are other people going to think? And that's only increased in our day, right? I'm old enough now that there was a day it was like, okay, Christians are really nice people. I'm so glad there's some Christians in this world. That's over. Then it was like, we don't agree with you, but just stand right over there and do your little Christian thing. We'll leave you alone. You leave us alone. That's over. The day we have now is you're the entire problem with our world and you are a hater and you are the reason we have all this. Woo! You will not be popular. You will not find favor with our culture. Oh, it's like, what will it look like? You know, sometimes when you're lost, you've already declared boldly all kinds of things. I'm going to have to take that back. I have an entire friend group that we all do this and say this, right? What will it look like as I turn towards Jesus? What would it look like if they see me going to church now, getting in a small group, reading my Bible? I've got a reputation at stake and an image to be concerned about. Literally, when I try to share the gospel with people, it's, it, sometimes the objection I get, this has happened more than once, is not, oh, I don't believe the Bible's true. What, where's the credibility? Jesus was just, you know what I hear? They're like, oh. Literally, I had this person look at me and say this. Every time, because I said to them, have you ever, they grew up in church, but they're lost. 
Have you ever given your life to Jesus? What they said next was not, oh, the Bible hasn't told me enough. Oh, Jesus isn't. They said, every time I think about giving my life to Jesus, I think about what my friends will think. Oh, is this big? Yes, it's big. And then they said next, I kind of have a reputation. I was like, I know. I see you online. Yes. You know, you've already declared so many things and you've built a friend group based on this is what we think. This is what we do. This is what we say. Woo. But what you have right here in verse four, you guys, is a man who doesn't care what anybody else thinks because he is so desperate to know who Jesus really is that he throws caution to the wind. You're like, Brad, help me see. In what way does he throw caution to the wind? Oh, listen. Number one, by being in this crowd of common people, he did not risk mixing and mingling with common people, you guys, because he was hated, despised. It is very likely, right? Crowds gather long before whatever you're wanting to see shows up, right? He is in the streets with these crowds. It's very likely He's been pushed, he's been shoved, maybe even knocked to the ground. It's possible that they have spit on him. Because in the Jewish culture, that is how you expressed your greatest disdain or disgust for someone. You spit on them. And he fits the category, you guys. Oh, I know we just headed through April 18th and you don't like paying taxes. That's not the same as what was going on here. Oh, they consider this. Their land was occupied by another nation. Rome ruled them. They lived as occupied people with someone else telling them what to do. Human beings don't like that. He was considered a traitor. You're a Jew and you actually help Rome take taxes from us and you get rich at the same time. You are an extortionist a co-conspirator with, we hate Rome and therefore we hate you. We can't believe you do this. He's in the crowd. He didn't care. He risked getting out there with the people. Oh, but there's more. He's a wealthy man that ran and you just didn't do that. I brought this to you when we were back in Luke 15, right? Prodigal son, when the father saw him from a distance coming, he took off and ran to his son. You dignified, respected, looked up to noble people didn't run. He's in the crowd. He ran, but there's more. In his wealthy, expensive, aristocratic, chief tax collector garments. He climbed up in a tree. That couldn't be, his outfit was not designed for climbing. That couldn't have been easy and it certainly didn't look dignified. But he doesn't care. He doesn't care. This man doesn't care what anyone thinks about him. And so he does what only children back then did. He ran and he climbed a tree to see Jesus He was willing to lose his dignity to risk public ridicule. He was willing to lose his dignity and risk 
public ridicule to find out who Jesus really is. Guess what? That's still true today, you guys. And always will be. People don't mind you saying, oh, I'm, I'm into spirituality. Oh, I, uh, the faith, the faith. That's so nebulous, the faith. When you begin to move towards Jesus Christ as the only way, believing he is who he says he is and examining that, you will pay a price. You will pay a price and you will fall out of favor with the cultural elite. Because at some point, quickly, you know, we've got people who have a version of Jesus that they aspire to and no one will bother you about that because he doesn't believe anything and he just loves everybody. But when you begin to look to him and listen to him and say what he says and do some of the things he's, it doesn't line up with our culture. Our culture will tell you in a heartbeat, here's who you must affirm. Here's what you must celebrate. Here's how you have to say this. If you aren't saying all this and doing all this just right, you better look out. You will be ghosted. You will be canceled. You might get attacked even by people who have been some of your best friends. When you turn to Jesus, people will turn against you. I would say it to you this way, and you gotta, you gotta recognize this, you cannot have Jesus and favor with our culture at the same time. If you think you do, you probably don't have the real Jesus of the Bible. You cannot have Jesus and be popular at the same time. These two things are oil and water, they do not go together. It takes different forms in different cultures and different centuries. But you'll have to swallow your pride, be willing to look foolish, and risk ridicule to find out who Jesus really is. In other words, you're going to have to get over being so grown up and so image conscious that you can't come to him like a little, say it, child. There's a lot of things when he calls us children, he says you got to come. There's a lot of things you can draw from that. But today I'm going to give you another one. I've got two grandkids now. I had five little kids of my own, but now I got two. I'm seeing it all over again. My grandson, Jack, does not care about his image. Trust me. He does not care what we conclude about him as he does what he does. You know what he does care about? So children do not care about image. You know what they do care about? What they want how badly they want it, and who they think can give it to them. That's why Jesus said in Luke 18, just one chapter back, you guys, Luke 18, 17, truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a, say it, child, shall not enter it. If you're coming to him still image conscious, still hoping you can keep everything online looking fine, still not, not have any, not lose any of your likes, not lose any of your platform you're following. I don't know what it is. At work, still be well thought of. Not going to happen. And oh, here's the thing. When the spirit of God begins to truly draw you, you don't care. It's so real. And you know, oh my goodness, I think he has what I've been looking for. 
We were just at a hangout uh, just last Friday night at the Independence Campus. And we were headed to the car when Jason, our campus pastor, just shouted and said, Wait, Pastor Brad, i got to tell you something. So encouraging. So encouraging. A young lady invited her sister to our Easter service. That sister said, It was like he was speaking to me. That's what the Spirit can do by God's word. She came the next week and I was preaching about the Pharisee versus the tax collector. She's like... It's like he's speaking to me again, two Sundays in a row. And then she began to read her Bible publicly at work, where she works, blurting out loud, this is so good, you got to read some of this. This is so good, you got to read some of this. And God has saved her. But trust me, she had to throw caution to the wind. This was someone who already had a certain genre. Already, I won't go into details. It wouldn't be appropriate. But we tend to look around and say, oh, there's someone super nice, all squared away, cleaned up. They're almost in the kingdom already. I'll just give them a nudge. God can and does save anybody to the uttermost. Anyone who's willing... To face public ridicule, anyone who can get over themselves and stop being so worried about, you have to, you have to hit a point in life where you are so hungry and so thirsty and so longing for what is it I don't have? Cause I don't have something. And I know there's something outside of this world. There's more, there's more, there's more. Cause you're created in the image of God and eternity's in your heart. You gotta say, I want that so bad. I don't care. This is what you have right here with this man. He doesn't care what anybody else thinks. He's not image conscious. Zacchaeus was so convinced that Jesus had what he needed that he didn't care what he looked like or what anybody else thought as he went for it. That's the first thing you're going to have to think about. Number two, oh, you want to be saved by Jesus? You have to receive him by Faith. That's what's going on in our passage. That's what you see happening in this passage. And it all starts with Jesus, not us. And it always does. True salvation, you guys, religion starts with us. We do it all the time. True salvation always starts with Jesus, not us. I'm not like a Nazi about it. I don't blow a whistle and throw a flag every time someone tells their story. And sometimes people say, and I found God. You did not find God. He's never been lost. You were so lost. And he began to reveal things to you. He began to help you to to hunger. He began to show you, oh, Jesus became beautiful to you. God's word was alive to you. He found you. That's what he does for every single one of us. Why? Because this passage says he's a seeking, saving God. But he found you and he found me or we would all still be oh so lost. The difference isn't between people who are Christians, people who are not. These people really looked hard and found him. These people haven't gotten serious yet. It's the grace of God that you had any desire to examine it, to explore it, to head down that path, to say, wait a minute, this is worth checking out. It always starts with him. You see, letter A, look, Jesus saw him and spoke to him first. Verse five, and when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry, come down. 
There are so many things I appreciate about Jesus. As I read my Bible every year, I want you to know it's not like I've got more and more information and this framework of Christianity is more and more solid to me. I hope, but you guys, there's something better and bigger than that. I fall in love with Jesus more and more and more. I I, I sense a time coming soon that I'm just like, I'm going gospel only. I got to have Jesus. A, A sadness settles into me when my John is finished and I move on to Acts. It's like, oh, I miss Jesus. I mean, he's being talked about other places, but straight up, undiluted, Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. I love it, love it, love it, love it, love it. And I'm loving him more and more. Christianity is not a system. It's all built around a person who's real and knows you and calls you by name. That is unlike any other religion. Here's what I want you to appreciate that is just a wow moment. Do you realize right here as he heads into Jericho, 10 days, 10 days left in his life. Here's what he's got. And I want you to appreciate it because when I got something weighing on me, when I've got something looming, when I've got something coming up that I am really concerned about, guess what? I tend to not notice people. I tend to go into my own little picture this. Jesus, 10 days left is coming into Jericho with the weight of the world, the mess of our sin, and the horrific suffering of the cross and wrath of God that's gonna be poured out on him, pressing down on his mind. And yet, he stops to take notice of one lost sinner. What a savior. And, and, and pick up on this. He doesn't just stop. He doesn't just look up. He calls him by what? Calls him by name. Calls him by name. Zacchaeus, hurry. Come down. Calls him by name. And here's why. Here's, here's why Jesus does not think, you guys, in terms of nameless, faceless masses of humanity. Wouldn't that be easy? He still sees individuals created in the image of God and calls them all by name. Calls them all by name. And that Jesus hasn't changed you guys. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So here's what I want you to consider. Same Jesus Is he calling you? Is he calling you? There he is. (laughs) Hey, yay, yay. This was supposed to be a powerful, serious moment. Heaven and hell are at stake right here. Is he calling you? Has he been calling you during this series? You guys, we're in Luke 19 now. We're about to hit pause and head into a summer series on Ecclesiastes. So this is a great time to just reflect and consider. We have walked with Jesus for three years now. You've seen enough, you've heard enough, and some of you, you've heard him calling you. You've heard him calling you. You've heard him calling your name because he still today calls people by name, by name, by name. 
He might be calling some of you because he still sees you, loves you, and wants to save you. One person at a time. He doesn't save masses. One person at a time. If he's calling you, so if he's calling you and you've been feeling the nudge, you've been feeling the prick of God's spirit, you've been, oh, I would love for you to do what Zacchaeus did. Letter B, Zacchaeus received him. And that word, received him how? In what way did he receive him? Joyfully. It is a strong word in the original Greek language. Super strong word. And that's because Zacchaeus was overwhelmed by the implications of Jesus stopping, looking at him, calling him by name, and then inviting himself into Zacchaeus' home. And oh, it all went down publicly in front of the crowd. Because guess what? Jesus also doesn't care what people think. He does care and love lost sinners. He never, he never complied with what they expected. He never bent over and did what they wanted. He never gave in and he was slandered. He was maligned. He was accused in so many different ways. He doesn't care what people think. He does care desperately and loves lost sinners. So he stopped. He called him by name. And he invited himself into Zacchaeus' home. So make sure you understand when Luke tells us that Zacchaeus received him joyfully, we are talking about Zacchaeus believing in Jesus' name for salvation. That's what just happened. Believing in Jesus' name for salvation. In other words, Zacchaeus in verse 6, when it says, and he received him joyfully, Zacchaeus in verse 6 has done what John chapter 1 is talking about. In verse 11 and 12, when it says, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to how many? Say it louder. Oh my goodness. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. And it doesn't matter what's been done to you. There's no one too far. I love that verse in Hebrews that says he's able to save to what extent? To the uttermost. Uttermost. But to all. All. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name. What John is doing is he's, he's using these two phrases to inform us. When you receive him, that is the same as believing in his name, who he is. So he's not talking about, oh, Zacchaeus was happy to receive him for a meal. The, the Pharisees and the religious leaders, quote, received him into their home all the time for a meal to trap him, to catch him in his words, to debate him, to play games. Hopefully they could catch him in something they could condemn him for. You just said, this is not what it's talking about. He received him joyfully. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right 
to become children of God. Oh, there is so much that we can learn about salvation in that one verse. First, it is a gift. He has to give it. He has to give it. He gave the right to become, oh, you're not born a child of God. I know rock bands love to do big concerts and raise money for farmers and say, we're all children of God. No, we're not. You have to become. Now, we're all created in the image of God. Yes, from birth. But you have to become a child of God. He has to adopt you into, you were outside, you were an enemy, you're born a sinner, and he has to adopt you. When you believe in his name and you receive him, he gives you the right to become a child of God. In other words, he has to give it. You're not born with it nor are you entitled to it. He has to give it. You're not born with it. It was like, oh, I grew up in a Christian family. Whatever. Oh, my kids grew up in a pastor's home. Big whatever. Nothing you're born with puts you in a state that's already right with God. Doesn't matter what your path's been, where he has to give it. You're not born with it, nor are you entitled to it. But oh my goodness, you can receive it as a free gift by faith in Jesus. That's how you become a child of God. Zacchaeus received him joyfully. That's what Jesus did for Zacchaeus. Letter C, Jesus saved him. Jesus saved him. Look at what Jesus says to him at the end of verse five. Zacchaeus, hurry and come down for I am thinking about heading to your home. I'm toying with the idea. Oh, I love it. What's it actually say? For I what? Oh, I'm coming. I must stay at your house today. When When Jesus uses that word stay, I must stay at your house. And when the crowd in verse 7 says, doesn't he know he's gone in to be the guest of a sinner? Those two words, stay and guest, actually indicate room and board. He's moving in for a while with Zacchaeus. He's going to spend some nights and share some meals. And in that culture, that was a big, 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 big deal that indicated intimacy and friendship. That's why they're like, does he not know? He's gone in to be the guest of a sinner, a sinner. In other words, when you receive Jesus, he comes right into your heart and home because he wants to have a relationship with you that will affect every nook and cranny of your life. It's personal. He, he gives himself fully to you and he expects full access into your, it's not, you can't say, yeah, I want Jesus to stay in the living room. Stay right out there. I got stuff in the back bedroom that just, it would be awkward for you. You, Being God and everything, you don't want to see that. Oh, no, no, no. No, 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 no. Receive him joyfully. 
He gives himself to you fully. He expects full access into your life because he wants a relationship. This is so different. You think about it. I'm I'm trying to help you today one more time. See the difference between salvation in Jesus and religion. This is so different than the safety and superficiality of a checklist religion that leaves you in the driver's seat and lets you determine how much you want this religious thing to actually affect the most important areas of your life. Let's not get radical. Let's not get crazy. Let's not be, right? That's religion. I'm still in the driver's seat. I still determine how much I want this religious thing to affect my life, real parts of my life. Which means you're still in control. That's what religion does. You're still in control. And here's what it means. You're never done. Because it's all focused on what you're trying to do for God. And so you never know if you've done enough or if you're doing the right things. Or if one big bad thing undid all these good things. You're in control and you're never done. Because it's focused on you. But when you receive Jesus and he gives you salvation. Oh, it's done because it's based on him and not you. Look at, look at what I'm talking about in verse nine. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house. Oh, notice what Jesus is doing. This is unlike any other religion. He just used the past tense. He doesn't say, and today salvation is coming. Salvation will come. Salvation has come. Past tense, done. Salvation has come. Because he is salvation. When you have Jesus, it's done. It's done. It's done. Radically different than what any other religion offers. Jesus is talking about salvation in a way that Buddha and, my, you know, the media loves to say, oh, we got all these religions. It's all the same thing. All trying to, trying to get your way to God. One of their favorite illustrations is the mountain. And there's different paths. Same God, same mountain. That's just so not true. Or they love to use that elephant illustration. If blind people were groping around, one grabs the trunk and thinks an elephant is like a snake. One grabs the leg. One grabs the tail. They all have different perspectives, but it's still an elephant. Lovely, 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 and we'll send you to hell. It's not just any religion will do. It's Jesus. Jesus took on flesh, came into this world to do for us what we could never do for us. That's unlike any other religion. Jesus is talking in a way that Buddha and Muhammad never did and never could because they were always pointing, telling you how you could be saved if you could do what they're telling you to do. But Jesus, Jesus in verse nine says, salvation has come, done, because you've received me. You've believed in me. Jesus has the audacity to say it that way. I, I know our first thought is, even when I talk to people so often, what I'll hear when I talk about heaven, hell, eternity, being right with God, it seems humble. 
But people will say, well, well, you never can truly know. You cannot. They almost feel like it's going to be arrogant if I say, yes, I know I'm saved and I know I'm on, on my way to heaven. It would be arrogant if you're all about religion because you don't know if you've done enough. You don't know if you have the right list. You don't know if you're on the right path. You don't. But you guys, if it's not about you and it is all about Jesus, it is not arrogant to say you know. It is celebratory and appropriate and according to the Bible to say, oh, yes, oh, yes, I know. And it's not me. It's because of Jesus. I know Jesus and I know who he is and what he did. I know the promises of the Bible and I've laid a hold of them for me. I know I'm a sinner who could never save myself, but God has saved me through his son. That's not arrogant. That's biblical. That's biblical. Even the world, you realize even the world recognizes what's up with religion. Have you ever noticed whenever they choose to do something, cover of Time magazine or Newsweek or PBS does a special documentary about world religions? Start watching. They almost always title it something like man's long search for God. Man's quest for God. As if he's lost. He's not hiding. He's not a hiding. You realize our God wants you to know him so badly that he left the glories of heaven, took on flesh and came into our dark, messed up world. And now he left his spirit here who's at work. And then he gave us a revelation of who he is and chose to keep it inspired and intact so that you could know him. God wants you to know him. He's not hiding. It's not man's long search for God. It's been centuries of man running from God. Man creating his own religion and God so that I can stay in control and autonomous. That's the story of the history of man. But our world recognizes world religions are all about searching for God. Christianity is about what God did to seek and save lost people. And what God is doing today, right now. Let me give you a verse. It's not in your outline, but jot it down. First John 5, 13. First John, not the gospel of John, the little book. So if you ever think, well, is it wrong to say I know? Is it wrong to say I know that I'm saved? Here's your verse. First John 5, 13. Here's John wrapping up this letter and he chooses to say this. These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the son of God. Do you believe? And that doesn't mean, yeah, yeah, I believe there was a Jesus. That's like, I believe he is who he says he is and did. Name back then represented character, everything about that person. These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the son of God that you may say it. Know that you have eternal life. You realize God wants you to know? He doesn't want you to live with anxiety. He doesn't want you to live saying, I don't know, I don't know. I don't." Because guess what? Until you truly know, you don't spend much time telling anybody else about why give them what the angst that you have. Like you're still so busy coming over your own life. I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. You don't have time to see lost people and share. When you know, oh, and then you love him like I'm talking about, and 
You haven't gotten over that he saved you? You talk about him to others. You tell others this good news that you may know that you have eternal life. Hey, you can know it. You can know it because you don't come to God pointing to what you've done, but what he's done. You don't come to God aware of your good works, but overwhelmed by the finished, perfect work of Jesus. You don't come to God focused on what you're willing to pay for your sins, but rejoicing in what he paid in full that never needs to be done again, never fades away, and cannot be improved upon by anything you do. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. That is unlike religion. And he doesn't wait for us or hope you will find him. He goes looking for you. Look, look what it says in verse 10. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. The lost. One of the most glorious verses that sets Christianity apart. Religion waits for you to follow them. Start trying to keep their, pick up their list and then get in line trying to do what they've already got everybody else trying to do. That's what religion offers. Radically different than what Jesus offers. When you understand the gospel, when you understand the truth of who you are and who he is, then you say, I am lost and without hope. I am a moral failure and could never please God. But God sent his son to die in my place for my sin so that I can be forgiven and become a child of God, an adopted daughter, an adopted son. And oh, listen to me, when the joy and peace of the good news, of the, this is why we call it good news, you guys. It's like nothing else. It's like, oh my goodness, that's such good news. I think I've told you before, but I was sharing the gospel on a plane to a young man in camo that was on his way back to do another tour of duty. And as I explained the gospel, he'd already been spending time with Mormons who had him so upset over his sin, but he had no solution for his sin. And he said, I'm trying to get sin out of my life. I'm like, Good luck on that. Let me tell you, let me know how. And I began to share the gospel. He interrupted me and said loudly in front of everybody, this is such good news. I'm like, yeah, we call it that. Good news. You, you could never get sin out of your life. You'll never be good enough. You cannot keep the 10 commandments. But Jesus came and did for us what we could never do for ourselves. That's the gospel gospel. And when the truth of that gospel good news explodes in your life, guess what? When Zacchaeus understood the good news of the gospel, letter D, he treasured Jesus more than anything else. Do not make a mistake with verse eight. People have gotten confused with verse eight. And they think, okay, now is Jesus saying today salvation has come to your house because you just declared, hey, I'll give away half of all I have and I'll, I'll pay back anyone I've defrauded. No, this is not Zacchaeus 
saying, I'll do this great good deed that will earn me favor. And then Jesus said, now, oh, no, 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 you guys, this is Zacchaeus. When you understand the good news of the gospel and that it's what he's done you could never do, guess what? Everything else that had been so important to you that you had your life built around now takes a back seat. This is similar to that parable that Jesus told that we have not had in Luke, the parable of the pearl of great price. He's talking about the gospel. When someone found it, it says he sold everything. This is Zacchaeus saying, unlike the rich young ruler that came to him and went away sad, this is Zacchaeus saying, I have Jesus now. I have forgiveness. I am right with God. The things I had my life built around that I treasured and prized most now take a back seat. And this is also encouraging. If you were wondering after the rich young ruler, can God save rich people? He just did. But rich people have to get over themselves, get over what everybody thinks, and be willing to come to Jesus. Often rich people just don't sense their need because they have so much that takes care of needs. Come to Jesus like a what? Child. And say, I believe. I receive joyfully this Savior, this free gift of salvation. This is what's happening in verse 8. Oh, Jesus has been seeking the lost all through the Gospel of Luke. And in just a few days, we're going to see him dying for the lost by going to the cross and paying the price for our sins, absorbing the wrath of God for our sins. That's why Galatians chapter 3 talks about him becoming a curse for us. Quickly go to Galatians 3 and let me show you what I'm talking about. Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 10. Galatians 3, verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. Well, there you go. All the people are like, well, I'm trying to keep the Ten Commandments. You can't. You can't. The Ten Commandments were meant to show you, oh my word, I'm that bad, I fall that short. All who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by how much? Unless you can keep it all perfectly, well, you can't. You can't. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. The Bible's really good, you guys. If you'll read it, it just addresses so much of the confusion that people have. This tells you the role of the law. It's not gonna save you. Now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by, what is it? Faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us. That word means to buy you back, to pay a price. He paid a price with his life. We were slaves to Satan and sin. He bought us back from the auction block of slavery to sin and Satan. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Zacchaeus climbed up in a tree to see Jesus. Jesus hung on a tree to save us. Cursed is everyone who's hanged 
on a tree so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. In Genesis 4, when God said to Abraham, through you, I'm going to bless all peoples. He never meant the Jews are just the people who are going to get saved. He meant the Jews are going to be the nation through whom I send my son, who it's to save every nation, every people, every tongue, every tribe. So that Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, might come to the Gentiles so that we might, here's that word, you cannot achieve salvation, you have to receive. We might receive the promised spirit. How? Through faith. What do you have today? Do you have religion Or do you have a relationship with Jesus? Are you focused on what you're trying to do for God? Or are you trusting in, resting in, delighting in what God has done for you in his son by grace alone through, say it, faith alone in Christ alone plus Come to Christ today. He will not turn you away. But you will have to get over yourself and what other people think. And you will have to come as a child. Oh God, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for our savior. That you didn't give us a system. You gave us a savior. You didn't start a new religion. We had plenty of that. Oh God, thank you for your heart for lost sinners. God, we thank you for Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.